0: Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you included this very important book in your word to make a way for us to have assurance of our salvation. So we thank you for the truths we're going to study today. I pray that you would help us to be honest um, in examining our own hearts. In your name, amen. Well, here's a few things you never hear in church. Hey, it's my turn to sit in the front row. Or I was so enthralled I didn't even notice the sermon went 25 minutes over. Uh, Or, I volunteer to be the permanent teacher for junior high school, Sunday school. (laughs) I don't think anybody's saying that. Um, I love it when we sing hymns I've never heard before. Yeah, I I don't think we hear that one either. And since we're all here early, let's just start the service. Or this one, Pastor, we'd like to send you to a Bible seminar in the Bahamas. Well, anyways... I don't think that's what's being said at church, but what uh, needs to be said is what John has told us in this passage that we're studying today. I remember being in college and being greatly relieved when a professor decided to grade a hard test, you know, on the curve. In other words, all the students scored low, so the curve helped to raise everybody's poor grade up. But that's not how God does the tests. He doesn't do it on the curve. So the book we're studying presents several tests to be able to know if you're truly a born again believer in Christ. There are doctrinal truths that must be passed as well as tests regarding our behavior and our character. This small letter concludes with that very familiar verse I'm sure most of you know. These things have been written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the tests that he gives us in this book are so that we can know. I'm very grateful for my husband's notes and the different books he's let me have to help prepare for today. So our study today continues with the test that helps give assurance of salvation. And for some people, this has been an area of real struggle because Satan does love to attack believers by tempting them to doubt their salvation. Others live lives that give little, little evidence that their character is transformed even though they've professed faith. And for some, the struggle often involves emotions like, I don't feel like I'm saved. So this wonderful book that we are studying is a book of assurance making it possible to know you have eternal life. John is writing this letter dealing with the dangerous teaching of the Gnostics that claimed that they had a deeper knowledge of divine truth and enlightenment. So to correct those who had been influenced by this error, John gives a series of tests to determine if a person really is saved. And the test we see here as we begin in verses 3 and 4 has to do with obedience to the word of God. Last week you saw that believers are to confess their sin. And knowing that God does not grade on the curve, we need to look honestly and carefully at these tests and be honest with ourselves and do what Paul said to the Corinthians, you know, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. The, okay, here's the test. How do you line up? <clears throat> so the first one is obedience to, the, to God as the basis of assurance. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So the way we can know we are a true believer is by examining our lives to see if we keep God's commands as a way of life. Certainly, this is not a statement saying a person has no sin. While no one has perfect obedience, a true believer continually desires to be obedient to Jesus. Notice John says, we know. That is to say, we know continually that we are in a relationship with Christ. We don't just know about him, we actually know him. And the evidence that a person is born again into God's family is that they obey him. They keep his commandments, which has the thought of being watchful and observant in desiring to obey. So this is to be the habit and the pattern of a true believer's life. True believers are not perfect in their obedience. We all know that. We saw clearly in chapter 1 that those who think they don't sin are just liars. But John is telling us that true believers desire to be obedient with the mindset of continually wanting to do what Christ and the scriptures tell us to do. This isn't just outward behavior, but it's internal attitudes that must be obeyed as well. So the test is to examine your life and see if you have a heart that wants to obey God and his word even when no one else is around you to observe whether you are doing so. Do you love to obey his will? Do you love to obey his word? Is that really what drives you and gives you purpose in your life, then you can have assurance of your salvation. John says in verse 4 that the one who does not keep his commandments is a liar and they are without the truth. Well, we all know anybody can claim that they are a believer, but if there is no concern about obeying the word of God, boy, it's pretty bold. You're a liar and you do not practice the truth. So this is why we need to be discerning, ladies, when we're listening to Bible teachers on TV, on the internet, who claim great spiritual truth, but it has to be backed up with a godly lifestyle. How many attend church and claim they know Christ, but they have no desire to obey the Bible? It's a total disconnect. Like, I come, or I study, but then I live, disconnected from everything I've learned. They have the same attitudes, the same values with their money, with their goals, with their entertainment as their unbelieving neighbor. So a person's behavior reveals their true heart attitude. Then there's the evidence that we love God in verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has been truly perfected. So a person who has obedience to God's word, gives evidence of their love for God. The word perfected has the idea of bring to a goal or to fulfill a mission. So if we really love God, then the result will be that we obey his word. How sad that so many people who claim to love God are speaking only from some emotional experience or feeling that they have about God, yet they fail to realize they do not pass the test of evidence of being a true believer obedience proves intimacy with christ as well by this we know that we are in him the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked so in other words there is a desire to behave like jesus behaved while he carried on life on earth jesus walked in humility he had compassion for other people he served people he prayed He trusted the Father. He was thoughtful. He was kind. He did not give in to temptation. He is everything we long to be. The issue is not perfection, but rather is it the greatest desire that you have to be like him and to become more and more like him as you grow? So the question really is then, what is your ambition in life? Is it to know him better? Is it to obey him with more consistency? If that is truly not a major concern to you, to live to please him then you have failed this test but if obedience to him is your priority then you can have comfort of assurance that brings us to the old and new commandment in verses 9 through 11 beloved I'm I'm not writing a new commandment to you but an old commandment which you've had from the beginning the old commandment is the word which you have heard on the other hand I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. And the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So here we have the next test for assurance of salvation and that is the test of love. By saying this is an old and yet new commandment, John is simply telling his readers that the commandment he is giving them is not something brand new, like what the Gnostics were saying. They had some brand new enlightenment. Rather, this command could be found in the Old Testament, where Israel was commanded to love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Jesus takes this command to a whole new level by commanding his followers to love other believers in the family of God the way that God loves them. So God commands us to love one another. It is a mandate from God that we must follow as his children. As Christ loves us, he then commands us to love each other in that same way. If Jesus lives within you, then he makes it possible and gives you the capability to love others. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So now we see everything differently. And our true identity is evidenced by our love. John John points out that there are some who claim to be in the light. They say they are saved. However, instead of having love for fellow believers, they actually have hatred for believers. The point is anyone can profess to be a believer, but if they have hatred in their heart, they are still in the realm of darkness. For the believer who struggles with a bad attitude towards someone, the difference is they're convicted about it, they know it's wrong. They hate their sin. They're bothered by it. But John is speaking here about someone who doesn't struggle with their sin of hating someone. Rather, this person validates why they have the right to have these hateful feelings. They have a sinful heart and they end up despising uh, what Christ loves. The reason is because they're still in darkness. This would have been true of the Gnostics. Teachers who claimed that they were so enlightened, and yet they were the very people despising true believers. A person can say they love God, but if they do not love other people, it is simply is not backed up by reality. Those who love fellow believers live in the light because they understand the truth. There is no cause for stumbling in them because those who walk in the light love other people, which keeps us from falling into sin against each other. Now those who don't love stumble in the darkness, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in complete contrast to the believer who walks in the light, whose desire is to love other people and to treat them well, John makes it clear that non-believers live in the realm of darkness and stumble in the darkness due to their spiritual blindness. For the unbeliever, sin is just a way of life. They stumble because of their unloving spirit towards other, and they cause others to stumble as well. So how are you doing so far with the tests that we have looked at? Do you walk in the light? Do you love fellow believers? How are you characterized by humility and sacrificial service for others? Do you forgive? Do you do acts of kindness? Is obedience to him your top priority? If these things characterize your life, then it is an encouragement for assurance of salvation. Of course, it doesn't mean that people don't have struggles with their attitudes at times. but if loving believers is true of you, then you can rest assured you are his child. That brings John to the next section, talking about spiritual maturity. John begins this section by making it clear that regardless of your spiritual maturity and where you're at, every believer everyone has experienced their sins being forgiven for his name's sake. Then he goes to divide the congregation into three groups that represent three levels of spiritual maturity among Christians. Some are like mature fathers, others are like strong young men, and others are like young children. Every one of us here in this room fits into one of these groups, if you are truly his child. And this is to encourage every believer because it is just, again, proof of their salvation. So all believers experience forgiveness of sins. That's why he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you for his name's sake. Little children is a reference to born ones with no particular age concern here. So in this verse, the little children is referring to all believers in the church, regardless of how long they have been saved. Uh, Verse 13 will have a different use of this word we'll see in a minute. But the critical truth to note is that all believers have experienced complete forgiveness of their sins by God. We are set free from our past sins, our present, and our future sins. Because that is the heart of the gospel. We can know we are forgiven right now and we are forgiven for all of eternity. Notice sins are forgiven for his name's sake. It is God who grants forgiveness to those who believe in Jesus, not on any basis of personal merit, but only on his merit as he paid for our sin debt on the cross. God forgives us because he has dealt with our sins through Christ when he poured out his wrath on Christ for our sins. So believers reading this letter don't need to be concerned about the hard words he intended here for the false teachers. All real believers have been forgiven of all of their sins by God, because of their trust in Christ and his perfect work on the cross. Now, the fathers are the most spiritually mature believers. They demonstrate spiritual stability in their lives. They have a depth in their character. They've spent time with Christ in prayer and in his word, and they obey his word, and they apply his word as a way of life. They don't just know about him. They don't just know doctrine. They know him through the study of his word, and their faith is rooted in truth from God's word, and they live their lives in pursuit of knowing him better. They've often been knocked down and dragged out by many trials, like we studied in James, of various types that have brought them to further maturity. Spiritual young men are the second group John addresses, and like the first group, it has nothing to do with being a male or being young, just like the first group has nothing to do with being a male or being old. Rather, John is speaking up, up Believers who are spiritually strong like young men are physically strong. They have a strong understanding of doctrine <clears throat> because of the word of God abides in them. And as a result, they have overcome Satan. They know God's word and they're able to stand firm against Satan and his schemes and deception. Like that of the Gnostic teachers Here again, John is pointing out that those who are spiritually strong young men can have assurance of their salvation. They overcome Satan in battle through the word of God. One author put it this way, Make no mistake about it, only the new birth could bring about such a dramatic change. Those who were once aliens and enemies of God, working in cooperation with Satan, have now become children of God who do battle against the enemy they once served. End of quote. So, if you and I want to be strong in Christ not be defeated by our enemy and his lies. We must be disciplined to take in the word of God, to study it, to listen to it, to apply it, and put it into practice in our lives. And then the third category is spiritual children. And here the Greek word John uses is different than the one we saw in verse 12. He uses a word that means a young child under parental authority. So John is speaking of the spiritually immature in the church. This may be because they've just come to faith in Christ and they haven't had time to grow much in their faith. Um, This may be because, as I said, they're new believers and they've just entered into a relationship with the Father. And they may just have a basic knowledge of God, but because of this they can have assurance of salvation. No one is to stay an immature believer. All of us should desire to be the strong men spiritually, and the mature father spiritually, if you are a believer, you fit into one of these three categories. Whichever it is, there is evidence that your life has been changed by his power because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now that brings us to the test of worldliness. This can be a little more painful. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So I'm sure in your study, you learned that there are different worlds mentioned in the Bible. There's the world that um, speaks of creation and everything God majestically created on this planet. And then there is the world in reference to the human race. And the third way the Bible uses the word world speaks of this world's system and its opposition to God and his ways and his values. Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. It is in this third sense John is using the word world. This refers to the sinful rebels under the control of Satan. It is the values. It's the belief system. It's the goals. It's the philosophies of life that are in complete opposition to God and his word. I mean, it's the culture we live in. This is the world that we do—we are not to love. It is our culture and society that is in the kingdom of darkness that opposes what God says on every turn. The activities that are common to this world are completely opposite, and they ignore God and what he says. John says we are not to love the things of this world, that the things in this world are the things we should hate. Satisfying our fleshly lusts, things that make us boast, things that make us proud. These are the things of the world that God opposes. This is the world we have been saved out of. And that is why we are no longer to love The world and its values and its godless perspectives on life and how it redefines sin as a disorder, and how it redefines marriage and redefines sexuality and redefines everything in complete opposition to God and his truth. Worldliness has often been thought of of a list, well I don't do this and I do this, so therefore I'm not worldly. But worldliness is an issue of the heart. It is the sinful things in our heart that we long for. One author put it this way, the world we are not to love is the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God and alienated from God. The world God forbids us to love is a fallen world. Humanity at enmity with God, a world of arrogant, self-sufficient people seeking to exist apart from God and living in opposition to God. It's a world richly deserving of righteous wrath, of a holy God. Dead set against the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the world we are forbidden to love. End of quote. So what we have here then is another test to help us determine if we really know the Lord or not. True believers may struggle with the attractions that this world may bring, but they do not habitually and persistently love this world system that is in total rebellion to God. Believers have turned their back on the kingdom of darkness at the moment they come to faith in Jesus. And therefore, we are to hate everything it stands for. We must be vigilant then to guard our hearts from the allurement of this world. We may stumble at times being tempted by the world, but love for the world causes one to turn their back on God. That's what happened with Demas, having loved this present world. He left. Therefore, For a true believer, the love of the world does not define or characterize them. But the unbeliever is characterized by the love of the world as they embrace the world's values, the world's attitudes, the world's outlook on life. Remember, Jesus told us in John 15, the world hates you now because you're different. You're distinct from the world. They hated me and they will hate you. John makes this a major test because believers in Christ are to hate this world's evil system. True believers do have struggles with being worldly and are tempted to think like the world, but true believers repent and hate it. So now he gets more specific. Love for the Father and the the world are completely incompatible. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. They do not go together. A person who continually loves this world with ongoing affection and no remorse and no desire to change, this person does not love God. It's not possible. As a believer, we, know we no longer love the things that pagans love that they live their lives for. A believer loves what God loves. They love his truth. They love his values. And they hate the love of pleasure and pride. In this human body, we have a continual battle and struggle of dealing with our sinful flesh. Unbelievers, though, are comfortable with loving the world and all that it has to offer. They do not desire to deny their flesh in any way. But if we know Christ, we are reminded here not to give into temptation with wrong affections for this world that hurt our testimony and rob us of our joy. Worldliness is an ongoing problem that we have to fight because we live in a world that constantly wants to seduce us and to desensitize us and not even recognize we're being sucked into their mindset. But it is this world that opposes God. Nothing in this world's evil system has its source in God. It can all be traced back to the world that opposes God, hostile, antagonistic to God and his holy standards. Now, the lust of the flesh is what characterizes life on the planet Earth. This world lives to gratify their self, their selfish desires. This goes far beyond the sin of sexual immorality. The sinful heart craves so many things. I mean, it's all about indulgence of, um, of self, whether it's in clothes, homes, cars, food, you name it. Lack of discipline, slander, materialism. Paul told us in Romans thirteen fourteen, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. So we can be seduced by this world system and not even realize it's happening. So be careful what you read and what you allow your mind to see on TV, in a movie, on the internet. It is so easy to be seduced by this world's evil system and not even realize you find yourself entertained by what entertains them. Do you pass this test? Do you hate your fleshly lusts? Well, the lust of the eyes is also from the world's evil system, and the world tries to seduce us by what we see. You only have to go back to the very beginning of sin, right? Eve saw the the fruit that she wanted, and it was the lust of that fruit. I have to have that. So it's what we see. We are bombarded daily by visuals that try to cause us to covet. I love what Job said in 31.1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? That was how he dealt with the struggle with lust. I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not looking. Psalm 101.3 says, I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. So it is satanic to live by the lusts of the eyes. If you find yourself then more excited about a new release of a TV show coming on or a new book or a new magazine that you've been waiting for and you're more excited about that than you are about serving Christ in the local church, then you have been seduced by the world. And that brings us to the boastful pride of life, another characteristic that is apparent in this world's system. It is the mindset that thinks a person is better than someone else because they have more money, they're better looking, they have more education, they have better accomplishments, more possessions. If you are someone who thinks you have to control what others do because your way is the right way, then you've been deceived. Whenever we think highly of ourselves. We really have a worldly attitude. It's not how long your skirt is. It's your heart attitude here. Everything we have, everything we accomplish is a gift from God. There is no place for pride. This world and everything in it, John reminds us, is passing away. But the one who does the will of of God will abide forever. So this world is in self-destruct mode and it's all going to pass away. Only believers in Christ who do his will are going to live in his presence forever. It doesn't take much awareness at this time in our country to realize society is not getting better. Sin and its lusts are absolutely destroying it. So why waste your life by using your energy and your time to pour into something that isn't going to last? Colossians 3 reminds us, set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is not our home. And if all you think about is everything related to life and here and now, it's, it's a clear indicator that you need to have an adjustment in how you think. What is your top priority? So now we have the test of truth, which I'm just skimming over because of time. But John closes out this section with the test of truth. As revealed in scripture, the truth about Jesus and the gospel. He contrasts the false teachers and true believers relating to the truth. False teachers are planted by Satan, and they are in the local church. And on TV, and in the Christian bookstores, etc., they talk about Jesus, they talk about the Bible like believers do, but they are actually antichrists because they teach what is wrong. They may have partial truth, but it's combined with error. And they often end up leaving the church. As John says, they went out from us because they really weren't a part of us. They were never true believers to begin with. True believers know the truth about Christ and they are able to recognize error. And they reject wrong doctrine. In verses 25 to 29, John talks about the promise of eternal life. He says, true believers practice righteousness. And he ends with encouragement that every believer uh, should continue in fellowship because we have a great incentive. He's coming back. I mean, it could be today. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. When Jesus returns, all believers, unbelievers rather, are going to shrink away from him in shame and in terror as they finally recognize there really is a righteous judge, and he's come to judge me. John is addressing the Gnostics specifically, who claimed that they knew Christ, but they were lost, and they were fake. But everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Those who practice righteousness uh, actively pursue what God says is right in both their attitudes and in their actions. So, The truth is this if you are a true believer, you will practice righteousness as a way of life because you are a child of a righteous God and you have his nature living in you. You are going to desire to obey his word. Does this describe you? Do you have a true desire for purity? Do you want to honor God in all your attitudes as a daughter, as a mother? As a wife, as a friend, as a church worker, and every role that you find yourself in a job, is your goal in that role to do exactly what he tells you to do as a woman in that role? Are you obedient to his clear commands? Is that the priority of your life? Do you have desires to honor God in your attitudes? If not, then this test is for you to examine yourself. God doesn't grade on the curve. You either pass his test from this chapter or you do not. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. It's profound. It's sober. It's there for us to find comfort in. It's there for us to know that we have eternal life. But it's also there for those who really don't pass these tests and maybe have thought they're a believer all their life to stop and examine, to see the truth, Lord. I ask that you do a work in each one of our hearts to be honest before you. If we've been seduced by the world, Lord, make that very clear to us. Help us to stop hiding behind, I don't know, whatever excuses we've come up with for bad attitudes, for loving things that the world uh, provides. And I just pray that you will help us to walk obedient, godly lives, that each of us would be in the category of a mature believer that we trust you, that we walk with you, that we recognize error, and that we repent of our sin when we blow it and we keep pressing on. I thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to go out and live in the reality of this truth. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies.